everybody. My name is Fel, Fel the Blythe, I use she or they pronouns. In fact, it was a summer day, not unlike this one today, very hot and humid. Only the difference was I was hundreds of miles from the United States, nestled in the cusp of the Amazon, wondering how six months ago when I signed up for this trip, I would become so different. We had just come back from some missions work and we were walking along the cobblestone street to Luis's house. The rest of my youth group walked ahead and I, I lingered behind. You see, just the night before in a hotel in Guatemala City, I had bared my soul to one of the youth group leaders. I'd given myself an ultimatum. And this wasn't the first time I had done so. I was either all in for Jesus in the way that the evangelicals wanted me to be, or I was all out. I couldn't see any way for there to be an in-between. The year before, I had chosen all in, but now everything was quickly unraveling. The story of how things unraveled is a complicated one, full of church politics, gaslighting, manipulation, and the slow ascension of a man who would become nothing short of a cult leader. The story of how things unraveled is not important in regards to the journey that it sent me upon. The important thing was that I had now signed myself up for a mission trip for a God I no longer knew if I believed him with no way to get home. To her credit, the youth group leader who listened, listened well. I asked her, how could I believe in feminism and believe in the God that the rest of the church did? How could I believe in the God our leader claimed to speak for when I had begun to hate him for what he had done to us? How could I believe in hell when, technically speaking, it probably wasn't even a concept that Jesus at the time would have, quote unquote, believed in? I could see her face. <laughs> she was used to answering things like, if God exists, why is there suffering? But I had begun pressing those buttons of doubt in her, and she too, like me, had none of the answers. I don't blame her for what she did next, but hundreds of miles from home, it did not help me feel any less trapped. It was the evening and we were all sitting in a circle and sharing as we often did on missions trips. It seems there was often more sharing than anything else. Sharing how God had touched our lives that day and how we had seen him touch the lives of others, congratulating ourselves on what we thought was a job well done. However, she had spread the word of my dissent and doubt and it became very clear that the people I had spent 12 years of my life since I was six years old, I'd spent 12 years of my life missioning with them all over the world. And now the tables had turned and they were now missioning to me. They handed me books on apologetics. And if you don't know what apologetics are, it's essentially the um, people use it as a, a proof 
of God existing using things like uh, logic studies or what they see as archaeological and scientific evidence. And they witnessed to me about my own life, my own struggles that they had seen me overcome. But none of them had seen this. The damage had already been done. I was in a bus the next day, and a girl who I've only seen a couple times since then told me that walking away would be the darkest thing I ever did. The next morning, I woke up before anyone else did, and I watched as the mountain in the distance turned orange. Slow, unobtrusive lava, a signal of majesty and might, but to whom that majesty and might belong to, I no longer knew. The book on apologetics made everything worse because I didn't know how to argue with it. It's written by people with PhDs, and that's just something I didn't have as an 18-year-old. So now I was confronted with a war inside me of evidence I wasn't yet smart enough to argue with, and the feeling of screaming doubt and wrongness inside of me. The group was left unsatisfied because for the first time in 12 years, I'd refused to cave to their witnessing, their group think, their emotional pressure. Well, it felt less like I had refused to, but rather something inside of me refused to. A few short weeks later, I went to Kansas City, Missouri to something called the Challenge Conference. Challenge was a massive congregation of evangelicals and full of enough emotional control to make the most ardent non-believer collapse into weeping. They knew how to push and pull all of those strings. How many times had I cried at this conference years prior, clinging to friends as we poured out secrets I later realized I didn't want to tell. So my only option was to shut down. I went icy cold, numb, dissociative, and these feelings or lack thereof would actually follow me for years and years. The attempts at witnessing at the conference continued. I met a man with a PhD who was a master apologeticist. He took me under his wing, but at that point I had begun to accept what was happening, or accept, at the very least, that I couldn't change it. I want to make clear, I desperately, desperately wanted to believe because this church had been my life. I'd once fantasized about being martyred for my beliefs, and I wrote letters to my future husband with whom we would raise our theoretical evangelical children. For 12 years, this community had systematically removed the ground for any other community to take hold. And so they became my everything. And I was 18 years old in the summer before college. And I so desperately did not want to go to college with no community and no faith. But that is exactly what happened. Word continued spreading throughout that summer, and I began receiving Facebook messages and real physical letters with candy and sweets, which felt kind of bizarre at the time and even now, and verses with how I was going to hell if I walked away. But on September 22nd, 2014, I wrote a public message that I had officially deconverted and I would no longer be returning to the church and the faith that had been my bedrock for 12 years. I was now free, at least I thought. 
So often in my life, I had dreamt of this moment. I did the dance of doubt before. In rural evangelical communities, there is what some people like to call the evangelical to new age pipeline, but that flows in reverse as well. At age 13, I made my first Wiccan book of shadows on a summer day, not unlike this one with nothing else to do and unattended with the internet. And there's something about summers that stirs a certain feeling inside of me. And I'm sure many of you feel it too. Even though many of us are adults and we no longer have back to school, that rhythm continues. It's like you're on the brink of one thing, but not yet quite at the other, floating in the in-between. There is sadness about leaving whatever it was and hope for a new year and new excitement. And there is a stillness before the change. If I close my eyes at the end of that summer, I can still feel the heat of the fire as I burned my book of shadows in the kitchen sink. Spells and belief going up in smoke, pages of childlike wonder curling in upon themselves, and I would forever chase after them. I did this dance a lot. Many of my friends were witches or into the new age, and I would go to school and I would fall in with them and I would experience a sense of freedom, but I always came back to the church. They always got me back and shamed me for doubting or exploring. But I was now free. I could write a new book of shadows if I wanted to. I could buy my own tarot cards and pray to spirits that I once thought were demons. But the ink had run dry and my hands were heavy and all of my words were hollow. I had fought so hard to shed the shackles of my old faith that now all belief evaporated before I could even catch a glimpse of it. I wrote poem after poem, song after song, chasing onto what I couldn't hold onto. I wish I had better words to describe my college years, but it's hard to explain a lack of something, an emptiness, a void. But there were little moments, the gentlest of breezes, a lightning strike against a tree, rain streaming down my face, moments not only of stillness, but of peace. Mostly, I went through the motions. I turned over tarot cards and prayed empty prayers to gods that I desperately wanted to believe in, but couldn't. And I rationalized it to myself that even if I couldn't believe in a higher power, I would try to believe in me, to find my own power in the world. I was free. For the first time, I was lost. Faith came slowly and quietly. I wish I had a better story for how faith came back to me, a moment of saving grace. But the truth is, I kept falling further and further. One summer, not so unlike this one, I relapsed on an eating disorder and ended up in the hospital. I was working in Manhattan at the time, and I simply couldn't take it anymore. As a rural girl, Manhattan was a lot. I, I had lost control because at that point, someone always had had control. Someone was supposed to be in control. 
and now I was supposed to walk on my own two feet by myself? I mean, how unfair is that? And as I was spiraling beyond anyone's control, I stood on the grass of my rural Appalachian home and I looked up to the mountains and I realized that they had always been there for me. The mountains never changed. When I felt that my God and my community had left me out to dry, the mountains were there, blanketing me now, just as they had always done and as they always will. And I remembered what it had been like once, summers before, to run with abandon through the fields and mud when God was not some man in a pulpit, but he was the cloud, he was the mountain, he was the grass. However, despite this, it would be several more months before I'd finally hit rock bottom, thinking about doing the unthinkable. But then divinity found me in the strangest of ways. Faith found me. And it wasn't in those woods, and it wasn't in a church, but it was in a club here in New York City on Halloween night. 2017. I was covered in glitter and stone-cold sober, and for the first time in three years, I looked around at my friends as they were dancing, and I realized that I was not apart from the world as the evangelical church had always taught me that I was, but I was a part of it. I had amassed a new community, piece by piece, and the only thing standing between me and happiness was me. And in that moment, everything changed. I wasn't angry at God anymore. With bodies dancing in a tangle of lights and costumes, I saw God on the dance floor, and I felt the divinity inside of me. And I vowed that night that I would try, actually try, and that, more importantly, I would stop making myself the main character and let myself just be one human made of stardust, briefly on earth and then to dirt, where I could return to the mountains that raised me. I was finally free, truly free this time. That year, I turned tarot cards, but they didn't feel so heavy, and lips began to speak to new gods I had always wanted to love. And I saw the world in color. I didn't know what I believed in exactly, but I only knew that I could, that I wanted to, that I was willing to fake it till I made it. It was August a couple of years ago. A summer not unlike this one, hot and humid in South Carolina. I lay on the beach, looking up at the clouds and their majesty. And in that moment, it didn't matter to whom that majesty belonged, but the fact that the majesty existed in the first place. The beach was quiet, and I was in awe. I pointed them out to my dad, and I said, that, that is divinity. And he didn't know what to say. He had assumed, because I had walked away from the faith that was his, that now I worship demon or, demons or I believed in, in nothing. 
However, in that moment, we found something that we could agree upon. The clouds were an example of divinity. The fish in the aquarium were an example of divinity. The turtles being born were an example of divinity. The little children running around with pure goodness and love in their heart were divinity. We agreed on this. It didn't matter who it was that made them. The Tolkien quote, not all those who wander are lost, is often touted, and it's rather cliche. But the truth is, some of us are lost. Many of us, in fact. And just because we find our way doesn't mean we won't be lost again. But sometimes you have to lose the old way to find a new one. And in these moments, between the old year and the new, in the liminal space that is August, between the old life and the uncertain, the path known and the unknown, I simply have one piece of advice. Put one foot in front of the other and put your faith in that moment, that after one step, there will be another and step by step, you will find your way home. Thank you. Hi, my name is Emmer Kelly. I am the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society. And today we are excited to return after a few weeks break to offering our additional discussion time, our Getting the Message, where we dive a little bit deeper into some of the themes of the service. And I am so excited to be here with Sel the Blythe, who you can find on YouTube. I will put a link in the comments. Uh, Fel, would you like to introduce yourself a little? Um, sure. Um, as I mentioned, I'm Fel the Blythe. I do YouTube. I make little mini documentaries, short films. I'm also a historical educator and a climate activist. Um, and I've been very big into advocacy for recovering from toxic religions and religious groups. Earlier in the year, we actually had a message that was about why UUism is not a cult. Um, it, was, it was a fun message. Um, but I, as a recovering evangelical, as someone who grew up in, the, in that world, really uh, appreciated uh, your message today. And it gave me a lot of food for thought on my own, on my own journey. Um, some of the things that I thought could be interesting to discuss. Besides, I suppose, is there any um, particular reason that, I mean, you, you know, it's kind of one of the things that you focus on in your work is like helping people recover from this sort of experience. Like, was there any particular reason for this message today? Yeah, I mean, it took me a while to settle on the theme of renewal initially when I was typing in my theme, I was just like got really wordy. It was like two sentences long. I was like, that's too much of a theme. So I thought something like renewal captured what I've done in my work in terms of like, because for a long time, it was just focusing on helping people deconvert and like recovering from the psychological and emotional trauma of that. Um, but now it's focused on helping people find new spiritual paths. So that was kind of why I went with renewal to as Supposed to just like talking about leaving one thing, but also finding another thing. I, you know, I think 
as, as a recovering evangelical, uh, naming it as trauma is always uh, an important first step. Like when I've talked to friends who didn't grow up at Christian and at Christian at all, um, they're always just like, Emma, like, what, did, what did you grow up in? Like, I'm like, okay, maybe it was a little traumatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and in particular, when you were, you're talking about like how evangelicalism, fundamentalism has this kind of like peer pressure where they kind of work in a coordinated way that, you know, it's not even necessarily seen as that. They think that it's just like trying to like make sure that like God is calling you back into the circle, but it's really this whole system that they've built up of pressuring you back into that. Like, do you want to elaborate a little bit on like- Sure, yeah, because I think that's hard for people who don't grow up fundamentalist to understand is that for me, it was so hard to name it as trauma because it wasn't malicious at least when it was, when it's done by like a lot of the elders, it can be malicious, but when it's done by like your peers or your youth group leaders who in many ways are like your parents, it's not malicious. It's, it's done with your best interests at heart. And that's what makes it hard to name it as trauma because they, it's so ingrained in the culture of the church to peer pressure. And it's done in subtle ways. Like it's never, not never, but in many times it's not necessarily, if you do this, you know, we're going to kick you out. It's that's said subtly. It's like, oh, well, when you make that choice, we're going to distance yourself or ourselves from you. Or they use love bombing, which is a tactic where they are like, oh my gosh, we love you so much. You're so great. God has many wonderful things planned for your life. Like when they literally, when I left the church, they literally sent me a box filled with candy like it was like because they made college care packages and at this point I like made known that I'd left and they sent me a college care package included a letter that they all signed that was like you know we can't wait for Satan to release you from his snares in the same box this this is just proof that God has a big plan for you that Satan is tempting you so hard yeah Um, it was it was very bizarre that makes sense Uh, that resonates uh, deeply (laughs) deeply deeply with my own experiences, especially like when part of that fundamentalism comes from like the parents' choice of yep. of uh, church. Like my parents, when I was born, were not super religious, and then decided we have a kid, so we're gonna be religious again. Yeah. Um, and you know, to like un- unpack that there was trauma caused by that choice. Like, it's, yeah, it's complicated feelings. Um, I also was fascinated by. Um, like this idea of like, which in a deep, deep part of my soul makes sense of wanting to believe, of like wanting, holding on so desperately. I mean, I think it's why it wasn't until fairly recently that I finally was like, maybe I'm not so Christian. Uh, maybe I'm not Christian at all. Um, that it took me that long to like, because there was part of me that still wanted some part of this to be true, some part of this worldview that I grew up like, even if I had changed it from like evangelical fundamentalism to a more palatable, like liberal Christianity, but I still wanted like the core tenets of that worldview to be true because it was so much to think about starting over. Yeah. Yeah. Starting over is, is hard. And what was interesting with me is that I, for some reason, couldn't see a way of separating myself from the church and joining a more liberal congregation for some reason that just wasn't an option for me because I had just so like 
vehemently kill that part of my belief in order to distance myself from um, the church. So I was very much like left with nothing. And starting over, the hardest part for me was community because the church had been, I went there on Sundays, Wednesdays, oftentimes most of the summer, like all of my friends were in the church. So I didn't have any communities and I was going to college where I didn't understand half of what was going on because I didn't grow up like with a bunch of secular people. So that was the hardest part was building another newer community. Right. No, that uh, having grown up in that community and then I went off to a Bible college and then I went off to a conservative seminary and then still just like a progressive seminary, like the, the friends that I lost along the way and had to like rebuild that community. Yeah, it is. You know, it, it is one of the reasons why I like UU spaces is like a place where you can find community without a specific dogma. Um, but that's just the UU plug. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think as, as a scholar of religion, um, that like the, the reason why I've had trouble maybe letting go of you know, even as someone like with maybe radical political beliefs, like a lot of people are like, why, why would you still be religious? But like, it feels like such a help in like trying to define meaning in your life and trying yeah. to like, just make sense of the world. Like we're still social beings. We're still just trying to like make sense of the world around us. Like we, we can't deny that those are parts of our, of our experience that we, we feel this need to like come up with something to fill the emptiness. Yep. Um, we can't just we can't just let that go. But we kind of have to build it ourselves if you leave like one of these traditional traditional settings. Um if if someone was engaging in rebuilding their spirituality, like what what maybe like beginner steps might you like advise them on like thinking about how to how to start that? Yeah, I mean I guess the, the very first thing is, is mindset because when I left I like I said I had to and I use the word kill very you know perfectly here I had to kill my old belief in order to separate myself from that um and like so so you just have to have compassion for yourself because I was so annoyed that now I was free to do all these things I wanted to do when I was younger and chastised for but now I couldn't believe in them because I couldn't believe in anything but the main thing that I did is that I didn't stop trying. So that's why kind of my finding faith again was subtle. And I kind of mentioned this in the talk that it was, it wasn't something that was just like kind of, um, you know, there wasn't a saving grace moment. Um, it no was, altar calls. Yeah, no altar calls. Yeah, it was just kind of a moment where I woke up and one day realized that I had faith again. And it was because I just kind of kept trying and the important thing was that it wasn't just, you know, online communities are important too. But the other thing is I was engaging in the community around me, whether or not it was religious. Just finding a new sense of community allowed me to build a sense of self, even if that wasn't religious. And then from there, I was able to connect with people and connect with them on this deeper level, which allowed me to connect to myself. And it's hard to explain sometimes people that, Sometimes even things that aren't outwardly spiritual looking can be very spiritual. Right, yeah, I agree. Well, I thank you so much for both joining us for the message today, but also for taking this time to chat a little bit more.
Thanks as always to all of our listeners.